1: John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Hope everyone is well, safe, hanging in there and staying home if possible. First, I want to call your attention to a new Sports Illustrated Podcast. It's called The Record. I am the host, and this is about... Sports stories through the years and uh, revisiting them with the writers. We talked in the first episode about Michael Jordan's abrupt retirement from the NBA in 1993. And this week, Jamie Lasanti, who you all know and are fond of, she and I talk about Venus and Serena Williams meeting in the final of the 1999 Open in Miami, then the Lipton and uh, the seminal moment that was for the Williams sisters and then for tennis. So uh, that is The Record, a new Sports Illustrated podcast. It covers all sports. But uh, this week, Jamie and I talk tennis and the Williams sisters. As for Beyond the Baseline, as for this week's tennis podcast, our guest this week is Dr. Jonathan Katz. He is a performance coach, sports psychologist based in Austin, Texas. He is a tennis guy. He's worked with a number of players. He's worked with college tennis teams. He's also worked with the New York Rangers and athletes in a number of sports. So this week we talk about sports psychology, sort of the state of the business, where it stands, how far we've come, and also what are some of the mental health dimensions, A, of being a tennis player, and B, of being an athlete in this period when you are frozen and inactive. And uh, sometimes it's compounded by financial stresses, as it is for so many. But what are sort of the mental health dimensions of, of COVID and this strange interval? So without further ado, here is Dr. Jonathan Katz. I think when we were texting, I, I talked about how we've been dwelling a lot on athletes staying in physical shape and home gyms. But I think there's a real dimension to this crisis about staying in, in in psychic shape and in staying sharp uh, mentally during this period of inactivity uh, where work work from home is not an option for most athletes. So I wanted to to bring you on about that. But why why don't we start general and just tell us who you are and how you got into this line of work.
0: Okay, well, I think the uh, maybe the short story is that, you know, I was kind of born and raised in New York, grew up in, in Washington Heights, was an athlete my whole life, and so played multiple sports in high school. Family moved outside of uh, New York City towards the latter part of high school and finished up high school there, um, wanted to play college tennis. Uh, was undefeated my senior year in high school in tennis that actually sounds far more impressive than it was since i was going to a small private school and the competition wasn't that great although fortunately my coach senior year got us some better public school teams to play um you know i went to college it was a d3 liberal arts school was gonna you know there was no scholarships you're just gonna walk on and try to play tennis no recruiting back in those days um i had a mild case of uh, mono so i couldn't play in the uh, fall. Um, so the whole team got to play indoors during the winter. And then I had to play a series of challenge matches in the spring to make the team. Um, I think I had to make, play six challenge matches. I won the first five, was up a set in 5-2, one game away from making the varsity tennis team as a freshman. And I think this is my first unconscious experience of the sports psychology impact in that I had a great deal of anxiety and I think also a little overconfidence in focusing on the outcome and making the team. I proceeded to lose that that set and that match, and there my tennis career was over. Uh, so that summer, um, a couple of things fell through in terms of jobs and broke up with a girlfriend, had to move back to my parents' house and threw on some running shoes and uh, uh, just needed to get out and started running three miles a day and Uh, Then decided sophomore year, go back and trial for the cross-country team. So I became a pretty serious runner in college, uh, ran cross-country for three years. Um, Then wanted to embark on, I was always interested in why people behave the way they did. And so I was very interested in pursuing a psychology degree and clinical psychology in particular, PhD in clinical psychology. Uh, I had the good fortune of getting into a program in St. Louis, um, while there I met up with a, a bunch of runners um, and so my athletic career um, started running actually marathons pretty seriously um, when I got to graduate school as it was a little overwhelming for me at 22 to embark on a PhD I needed something athletically that kind of balanced that out and starting to pursue marathons this was in the late 70s uh, I started to do that Um uh, pursued kind of my clinical degree. As it became time to write my dissertation, um, I started getting interested in sports psychology. Um, at that time, sports psychology was really in its infancy. It was really mostly from an academic point of view out of uh, phys ed programs. Um, and, and people in the traditional psychology world um, were not really that knowledgeable. Uh, fortunately, I found a couple of people on the clinical faculty where I was who were willing to be on my dissertation committee, and I I became very interested in um, in the ways in which physical activity and exercise impacted um, psychological adjustment uh, and mental health. Um, this sounds like such a kind of a uh, the most elementary uh, thing nowadays. But back then in the psychology world, there was really nothing kind of really done about this. Like I said, the research was as the phys ed departments that was really poor research. So I was very interested in the role of physical activity and exercise and mental health. Um, and then later on also became interested in the role of uh, sports psychology and high performance. So at that time, um, basically sports psychology was like being sent to the principal's office. Right. Uh, it was all yeah. about underperformance. So as I embarked on my dissertation, um, you know, I also was asked by some buddies if they were interested in starting to train for this ultra marathon, this, which I had no idea what that was then, back in 1980, a 50 mile race. And since the prospect of writing a dissertation was a little overwhelming, I once again went to something on the athletic front that was equally overwhelming. And so simultaneously, I trained for my first 50 mile run. Um, basically wrote my dissertation in sports psychology Um, getting my clinical degree, moved back to New York. My wife was an actress at that time. The idea was that um, we were going to move back to New York. I did my clinical internship, uh, NYU Bellevue Medical Center. And I basically then started to go along a dual pathway of having a traditional clinical psychology life work practice and started to pursue working with athletes and teams um, getting some traction here or there, um, working with amateur collegiate and professional athletes and teams, started getting some work with some NBA players, uh, some, uh, did some early work back in the late 80s with the Chicago White Sox and their minor league players through a connection of mine. And then um, really uh, 1990 really started embarking in a more in-depth way, working with a lot of teams, starting with working with a variety of college basketball teams in the New York area.
1: And at the time, was it, I'm at a baseline and I want to improve my performance? Or were you dealing with athletes that had mental health challenges that wanted to get to a baseline?
0: So basically where things were is that um, athletes were not coming forth. Sports psychology was not in the mainstream at all. As a matter of fact, even when I try to embark and get some headway and make some traction with working with college teams... I had some forward thinking coaches who were willing to kind of let me come be a part of this, but coaches historically, that we were very protective that are players and athletes. There was a stigma around psychology. Um, at that point, it was not out of the cup closet um, either from a performance or mental health point of view. So it was really seen as a, as a weakness. Like I said, Maybe sports psychologists came into play when somebody was underperforming highly. Um, now remember this was the kind of the norm back in the day. And a lot of these supportive things, if you look at the major, the triumvirate now of sports psychology and nutrition and, and strength and conditioning back in the day, you know, you went to see the trainer. If you had an injury, you went to see the nutritionist back in the day called the dietitian. Probably if you were overweight, So everything was a reactive thing. There was nothing proactive. Um, So so basically to get inroads here, it was it was it was a challenge. And so uh, I developed what I called this aversion model. My feeling was um, there's all this stigma. There's this hesitancy on the part uh, of athletes to kind of engage a psychologist in, in terms of the resources that I could provide. How could they get better? Are there kind of mental strategies? uh and tools that could mental skills that could help them improve their performance so part of my feeling was that you know the hallmark of any kind of good working relationship in the field that i'm at is is really kind of a trust a mutual trust and a belief that the person you're working with can help you do what you do better and that kind of came my elevator pitch and so i felt like the best way i could integrate was to be a resource to the team so uh, I started going to practice like once a week and um, traveling with the teams basically I didn't care whether I was talking with a player taking foul shots before practice or sitting in a meeting room or sitting next to them on the team bus Uh, if you could give an athlete something that would help them do what they did better there was going to be buy-in now confidentiality was a huge part of that that's been a Kind of a foundation and hallmark of my work. <laughs> so coaches knew and players knew up front that the specifics of what I would talk to players about would stay between them and myself. I would need to give the the coach some general feedback because they were working with the players all the time and, and this may be useful. It is a delicate balance. Uh, the reality is I was aware that if I would disclose stuff that was you know, confidential. They would lose all trust and lose all credibility on the team, and that would be it. And, and likewise, the, the the coaches. I really wanted to hear what they had to say, and confidentiality was there because their candid assessment of players and fellow coaches was was very important for me. So I developed this immersion model of of being a resource to the teams, right? Um, and um, and that's kind of how things really started to get off the ground for me from working with kind of high level athletes.
1: So let's I mean, let's spin forward to 2020. And it seems like, uh, like you say about nutrition and strength and conditioning, we have a much different attitude about mental health in sports. We've seen athletes speak openly about some of their challenges. I'm not sure the stigma is totally gone, but uh, we we don't have this code and players a head case. And it, it does seem like we are evolving in the sports world a bit. Is that consistent with what you're seeing?
0: Yes, I see two things happening. Yes. Uh, mental health is is out of the closet. More people are speaking more openly about it on a lot of forums. That is all very good. Um, I think this is a byproduct and a reaction to in the sports world, especially in the high level collegiate world, as well as the um, professional world, is that because of the pressures um, and expectations uh, put on athletes uh, from a performance point of view, challenges professionally, the money involved, the media and fan expectations, being in the public eye, and now with social media, um, it's, those things have been a, a huge benefit clearly for athletes, but but a curse mm-hmm. in that it has raised um, it has raised the pressures and a lot of the mental health concerns uh, for a lot of athletes who have not historically kind of sought out. Um, services, um, partly because of this stigma. And there's also sometimes a gender difference that, um, you know, historically, men have been a little more reluctant to reach out and talk about their feelings or their the vulnerability or the fragility or levels of discomfort in ways that historically women in our society have, it's it's been much more normalized. So I think, um, in a sense, male athletes have you know, come to the table a little bit later. Um, But I think this has been one of the challenges um, as we hit the current times.
1: Well, I think that's an important distinction. I mean, I think we hear the term, and I feel like to the casual fan, these terms sometimes get conflated. A clinical psychologist and sports psychologist and performance coach. But what I'm hearing you say is that you are not just a clinical psychologist whose clients are athletes. There is specific challenges and specific dynamic to the mental health of people that are in these competitive fields. Athletes have a specific set of challenges.
0: They do, they do. And and let me just say, uh, yes. And so, um, you know, back in the day when sports psychology was coming forth, and I, I don't know if it was somebody like John Smoltz or there was an Atlanta Braves pitcher who came out. It came out into the forefront and people, everybody and their mothers kind of wanted to become a sports psychologist. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these graduate school programs came about. And initially the training was on all this technique um, and strategies of kind of working with athletes. Um, and you know, I would get calls all the time. Hey, I want to become a sports psychologist. What do I do? I say, you know, what do you want to do for a living? They say, I want to work with professional athletes. Uh, you know, that's like having a clinical practice and saying, um, as my clinical patients, I'd only like to work with neurosurgeons.
1: Yeah, right, you right. know, you
0: might have one. So I've often, this is going back years, I mean, I don't get as many calls these days, but um, I used to get calls regularly. And my encouragement was for people to get a really good background education in clinical or counseling psychology, get some great clinical skills, and then, you know, kind of segue into trying to get experience working with athletes. Um, there are two components now so if, if i'm working if, if an athlete um although my work now is really about performance psychology and performance coaching um if an athlete individual athlete kind of you know speaks to me i will do kind of an in-depth kind of evaluation which in, involves like their background family social educational psycho psychological uh, as well as sport and performance and and we'll touch upon Kind of those issues on an as need basis. But if I'm working like for a college team, you know, my work there is very circumscribed in terms of performance based. So if I sense that there is kind of clinical or psychological issues that go beyond that, even though I'm trained to deal with them, my role in that environment is to then refer out so that they can handle them elsewhere and focus more on the performance issues. Gotcha. So because I'm trained in both, I have that variability, but I also kind of Perform to the area you know where I've been hired to perform.
1: So you're not making these these DSM diagnoses yourself necessarily, even if you are seeing something. You're you're referring. No, to and,
0: and basically, you know, as of like for the last 15 years, uh, both in the um, in the sports world and in the business finance world, where I do performance coaching and performance psychology, I, I've really been labeling myself as a performance coach so i tell people that straight up it's not that i won't get into psychological issues uh, and talk about things although i i do point out if there are severe or significant issues with the individual that are better you know handled in a more psychotherapeutic relationship i would refer out now that doesn't mean that i'm not addressing some of the psychological issues because everything is an interplay with athletes, right? They're personal, social, you know, if they're in college, they're academic and their performance. I mean, we're all holistic beings. So it's not like I'm not touching upon that. But if there's kind of more of specific kind of diagnosable, um, you know, condition that I feel is handled more pressingly by a, another professional, I will refer out.
1: To what extent um, do you size up athletes differently in team sports versus individual sports? What, what sort of a differentiation is that?
0: Well, the differentiation often, the evaluation to me on a performance level is is pretty much the same. I mean, I have a certain kind of very in-depth, not format, it's an informal format of things that I cover when I uh, kind of meet an athlete. Um, but, but there are very there are differences. I mean, you know, um, the advantage of of team athletes, I mean, I don't think that it varies in terms of the performance aspect, but uh, athletes who are part of a team, you know, have a certain, um, you know, camaraderie, cohesiveness, kind of they're part of a social network that is is very important in terms of their, you know, practicing and just uh, their ability. Also, you know, there's, there's pro and con. There's a diffused responsibility when there's a loss <laughs> and there's a, maybe a, a diffused attribution on the positive side during a win. You, it's a shared experience when you're part of a team. So the experience of performance and winning and losing on a team, right, you could perform well and your team could lose. Conversely, you could have a lousy game and your team could win. So there, it, it's a, it's a, it has its benefits and, and downside. If you're an individual athlete, like a tennis player, I mean, it's all on you, right? It, there's no place to hide. I mean, your performance is impacted by your opponent. But you have to, th- there are challenges because you're you're more like an individual contractor, right? Mm-hmm. If you're on the tennis tour, you're, you're traveling by yourself, maybe with a couple of team members, although, if you're a lower ranked player, you're going solo. So it's a much more isolated, lonely existence. Uh, And that can in itself breed um, some more kind of emotional, psychological challenges because you don't have the peer group, the team that could buffer um, some of the social isolation, loneliness, relationship kind of factors that are present with the team.
1: Yeah, Keep going with that. I mean, you're a tennis guy. I'm a tennis guy. You've you've done considerable work in tennis and we obviously we want to respect confidentiality. But as much as you can, tell us about your work in tennis and what specifically you've observed?
0: Um, Well, you know, I think, you know, the nature of being on the tour, and again, let me just say, just in the past, again, confidentiality, what it is, you know, I've worked with players from people who have won Grand Slams back in the day to, you know, players who are ranked, you know, three or 400 in the world and and everything in between, Mm -hmm. as well as high-level college tennis players. Um, I think... um, you know, there are incredible challenges because of the nature of, you know, the financial demands, the travel, the performance, the expectations. And, you know, you know that probably, I don't know, maybe outside of the top 50 75, it's hard to kind of sustain yourself on the tour on an ongoing basis. So the, the pressures are are great. And let me just even say right now, um, because even during this pandemic, when things are on hold, you know, professional athletes, they, they have a whole team, not only their, their players, they may be dispersed, but teams have a whole support system of, of you know, psychologists, nutritionists, and conditioning coaches that those folks have access to. Here's a perfect play case of like players are on their own. They now even can't compete and, and they don't, they're independent contractors, right? They don't have access to any of these things. So this highlights kind of the stress that they're experiencing. So I I think the week to week travel and demands um, and the expectations uh, I think, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, performance anxiety or, or, or the pressures again, the media and the fans, It's very hard. It's constant. It is a constant thing. And here's another thing, John, that I think a lot of people miss is that very often this has to do with age and maturity. A lot of the players on the tour are are rather young. And Mm -hmm. even though from a professional standpoint, they are uh, participating and behaving in a very advanced, high level way. Some of these other you know, players from a maturational level and age level are, you know, still like late adolescents, early young adults. So people look at them as this highly skilled, upper level, high level professional. And people often, again, fuse the or conflate the idea that the maturational and developmental levels of their tennis game matches their own personality and psychological maturational and emotional development. And so we, we make assumptions by seeing these great players and kind of just then assume that they have the same level kind of, of maturity uh, and wisdom, uh, you know, in, in decision making off the court. And, and that presents a lot of pressures because a lot of times, you know, you may have Again, people who are late adolescents experiencing the normal vulnerabilities and, and levels of discomfort and uh, fragility that, that emerging young adults have naturally and normally. But most 20-year-olds are not in the spotlight with every success or failure being commented on multiple times in
1: social media. Right. As a sort of personal referendum. Um, let me Let me ask you what you would tell clients who are not able to work from home what, what do you tell the athlete that is not working right now who's as you say could, could be 20 years old and suddenly never mind the the financial implications they're not able to do their job what, what, what would you tell them during this period
0: yeah. so this actually it's funny you said that um just recently i started uh, last few weeks working with a, a male player on the tour and, and, and I, I brought this up because uh, they kind of gotten out of the pattern, not only not playing tennis, but really had not been working out very much. And um, so I brought this up on two levels, basically uh, strongly recommending slash suggesting that they get back into a pretty regular um, routine of working out to me. I was less concerned about the nature of the workout, then they get a, a regular kind of demanding physical workout, and there's two reasons. One reason is just as a general world event in this pandemic, you know, part of the um, the difficulty that we all face um, is the uncertainty associated with this. Mm-hmm. Um, uncertainty is one of the great mo- <laughs> triggers for discomfort, um, and that with that uncertainty um, comes a lot of. You know uh discomfort and and so people one of the positive ways that people can offset that is by providing themselves with some structure and discipline to their lives Um, I know just as a long-standing, long-distance runner, it has been enormously important to me and very comforting and grounding to get out from my run every morning. It's something I've done for, you know, 100 years. But it's particularly important now um, just because it provides a sameness. I mean, apart from the psychological, physical aspects, there is a sense of control um, that you have over things in your life. Um, where a lot of the world is out of our control so Mm -hmm. from an athletic point of view one of the reasons that it's important to do this is to provide some structure and discipline for themselves the other aspect is just from a totally performance point of view is that you know and I was speaking with this athlete we don't know whether you're going to play in two months four months six months but whatever it is you need to put yourself in the mindset that This is going to be working towards your ability to perform at a high level. What happens if at some point in a couple of months, there's going to be an opportunity to play? Well, if you are six feet deep in your lack of um, conditioning, that's a hell of a hole to kind of work yourself out of. If you're one foot deep, that's going to be a lot better. You're going to give yourself a competitive advantage. If you find, engage, and kind of regain that motivation and desire to keep yourself in tip-top shape, granted it may, or may not be exactly tennis shape because that's going to help you you got to play the long game here from a motivational point of view and a career point of view because whenever things come back you want to be in the best situation both mentally and physically to re, you know to regain your professional talents
1: right what i mean it it's, it sounds trite but it's something i firmly believe that tennis really does teach life skills what are some other experiences skills developed traits that tennis players have in their arsenal that they can lean on here and tap into that they, they may not be aware of what are some other things that come with being a tennis player that might be helpful in this situation
0: well i think if you look at some common personality characteristics that are you know common along high level athletes you know you would say high level of discipline you know process oriented conscientious you know focused detail oriented hardworking you know, usually like emotionally, you know, resilient, um, you know, these are aggressive, achievement oriented, you know, competitive. The, the, these are, are, are common characteristics of, um, uh, of athletes and, and the best ones are, are really are kind of flexible, open-minded, right? So the ability as a tennis player to be nimble and creative and flexible, uh, if a plan A is not working during that particular match, to go to a plan B. Um, so, so uh, these are some of the common personality characteristics that I see, you know, present in a lot of high level athletes.
1: That's good. You, you also mentioned that you work in the finance world. You were, you were Wendy Rose before Wendy Rose. Um, Yeah. But um, you got that uh, reference. Um, but I mean, I'm curious, what, what is the overlap you see between traders and, uh, and athletes?
0: Well, a lot of those common personality characteristics, I think, are very common with the financial professionals and the hedge funds and and trading firms that I have worked with (laughs) since 2005 uh, as an in-house performance psychologist and performance coach. I mean, those are very similar. What I would say is that some of the differences is that, you know, generally speaking, a lot of the people in the finance world, because of their kind of educational and intellectual or uh, they they, they tend to be very kind of traditionally smart people who, as a result of their educational and knowledge base, often have historically underestimated uh, the importance of emotional psychological variables in their decision making and performance process. the good news is that they have a lot of those common personality characteristics uh, of, of, of that I mentioned with the athletes. And a lot of the guys, mostly men in this business, have been former um, high school and you know college athletes. So there are people who have performed at a pretty high level. Um, but what I would say is that they're often not as um, kind of uh, acutely aware of the role of psychology. Uh, and then they as they open up and become more open minded to it they see the um, the emotional component and the role it plays in their decision making and that's where the kind of the performance psychology piece can be enormously helpful for those folks
1: to what extent is this performance coaching personal and to what extent is this hey here are some behavioral biases you should be aware of or here are some ways your your brain tries to outwit you that you should be hip to and how much is this Personal and how much of this is general?
0: So, yeah, this is where the clinical psychologist comes out in me in that when I meet, you know, if when I meet with a new trader or a person in a hedge fund, you know, I do, again, a very thorough, in-depth evaluation, get a sense of their background, you know, born and raised, education, family, siblings, school, socially, everything, um, because I want to get a sense not only of their kind of strengths and weaknesses, but how they're wired personality styles. And so, although there may be common issues that people face, the truth is, I could see a, um, you know, just like this is true of an athlete, I could see a trader who the boss thinks is having a similar, two two traders having similar problems getting from A to B, but the underlying um, aspects of what's kind of triggering that for them from a psychological point might be very different. Mm And that's kind of like where the special sauce is, the, the treatment plan. I developed kind of a very individualized treatment plan for everybody that I work with, which is really based not only on the performance issues, but, um, but also how they're wired. Now, one of the things that I have found to be very helpful with athletes in particular, but I do this with traders, is when I work with athletes for the first time, I often, or not often, I always ask them to give me a scouting report on themselves. Um, as objectively as they can. Um, so, if it was a tennis player, like you know, speak about their you know their strengths, their weaknesses, the yeah. forehand, the backhand, all the strokes, their coachability, their conditioning, their mental game, and a couple. The reasons I'm doing that is 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 twofold. One is you're seeing um, the how are they perceiving themselves? Is there kind of a reasonable balance between strengths and weaknesses? Are some players or financial folks kind of overwhelmingly speak highly of themselves and may be blinded to areas where they might be weak. Are certain ones just overly critical? And even though they're performing at a high level there, when when they take you through their their scouting report, it it sounds like they're going to be, you know, a bench warmer, like for the rest of their careers, even though they're on the starting team. And also what insight and awareness do they have and to what degree? So it's a very diagnostic kind of tool for me. Um, And that helps kind of me in terms of getting to to learn them and to get to know them better in terms of putting together this kind of performance treatment plan, which then we embark on collaboratively together. Um,
1: You and I both read a story, coincidentally, independently, um, the Nick Thompson piece that I'm going to link about his running and really about much more than his running and wired. And I want to, there's a line in there that really, struck me, and I want to run this by you and see what you think. Um, he was quoting a sports psychologist, Tim Noakes, who um, I, I know has some overlap with tennis as well. So he said, as, as Noakes put it, what he calls the central governor model, part of the reason we slow is because our brain is telling our body to stop because it's scared. It doesn't want to overheat or develop a stress fracture in your shin, so it, pre- it preemptively hits the brakes. If Noakes' theory is right, it implies a mind-body dilemma. We could all go faster. We just have to persuade our brains now not to start the subconscious shutdown process right away. But the only thing we can use to trick our brain is our brain. Training becomes a game of hide-and-seek. And I was thinking, I read that and I immediately thought of tennis. And I wonder, A, a, if you buy this theory, the central governor model, um, and, and B, what you thought of that vis-a-vis tennis. Because that, that, to me, I thought had all sorts of... Uh, all sorts of illustrations in tennis.
0: Listen, I I think athletes in general, um, you know, and humans (laughs) try to avoid discomfort and it's very easy, um, especially when you're performing at a relatively high level to just not put yourself in a position to feel uncomfortable. I think intellectually, most athletes would understand that in order to get better, you need to push yourself and create a level of discomfort, which usually means that you are doing something that is new and challenging, and that you're not as good at. Um, and there's constantly an internal battle, I think, often unconscious, between getting to a comfortable component and pushing yourself out of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is ultimately the challenge um, when I'm working with athletes. A, a, a quick, you know, a story. Years ago, um, I was working with a tennis player. This is the perfect case of where he was, um, you know, he had an incredibly very powerful, strong, um, you know, sliced backhand. It was a very offensive shot for him, deep, consistent, low to the net. And he just went to the well on that all the time. And then over time, when he was playing against better players, um, the point would often end with the, his opposition kind of hitting, a, I remember in this one particular match, kind of a, a winner. Um, And so it looked to the average fan like this guy was playing a good match, long points. Nobody was making any mistakes. What are you going to do? His opponent hit these winners. And I've really felt that what this guy did was that he, he wasn't willing to really kind of create some discomfort for himself, that he relied too much on the slice backhand. And periodically, if you went next level and looked at those points, that there was some place within that rally where his opponent hit a ball short, little less pace a little less depth, where this guy could have come over the ball and hit a more offensive shot, put himself in the offensive situation. But he went back to the the area, the path of least resistance, which was his slice backhand deep. And so it looked to him like he didn't do anything wrong on those points. But it was clear it was more than he wasn't mentally willing at that point, this is something we subsequently talked about, to put himself in a position to try something That he felt a little more scared, uncomfortable with, and was a little newer and less safe for him. And I think this is ultimately the dilemma that athletes face: Are they willing to put themselves out there and basically run the risk of failure, embarrassment, shame, all the things that happen when we fail when we underperform?
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, one thing that always fascinates me in all sports: you say, what would you rather do? Win a match. Love and love or win 7-6 in the third? And some players say, what are you, crazy? I, I, I want to have a great day at the office. Love and love. And other players say, no, yeah. I, I like the battle. You say, in UFC fighters, same thing. Some guys want to win. They'd prefer to win at some crazy, you know, grind them out 15-minute bloodbath than knock a guy out early because they really want to push themselves to this point of discomfort. And, and other athletes yeah. have no interest in that.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, John. I, I, I've said this a bunch of times when I've met with athletes, After a particular game, I mean, I remember a hockey goalie, an NHL goalie, I did this, who gave up some early goals, terrible goals early. And then then a tennis player, the same kind of thing. I said, listen, I'm never sitting there watching and wishing you uh, get down early. But I say, now that you came back, you know, from 5-1 down in the third to win that match, like, that is now part of your DNA. Mm -hmm. I said, the advantage Mm -hmm. of that is... You now know, like there's no excuse now. You were now, you were on the kind of the precipice of defeat and you now found the way through all of blah, blah, blah that went on. But the, the, the most important thing is now when you work with an athlete is that you now know that that's something you're capable of doing. So it no longer allows your kind of mind to rationalize or provide excuses or whatever. It should give you confidence, but also should have you move away from a sense that this is not something you're capable of doing. Because a lot of, listen, we also know athletes who have never been able to get over the hump, right? right? In that final match, they can't do it. And it's a hard thing emotionally and psychologically to overcome. And, and you don't really have that true belief in yourself until you face that challenge and are able to
1: overcome it. I heard one of your peers once tell me, you know, no two w- victories are all worth the same in the standings? but no two victories are worth the same amount to the athlete. That there's a different value for every performance.
0: Yeah, and one of the hallmarks, I feel, of of high-level performers, and I would say this about athletes and and financial professionals, is that, you know, the losses are far more painful than the wins are pleasurable. I Mm. mean, and and that is often a driving force for high-performing individuals. And there's a delicate balance between not beating yourself up when you lose. It's one thing to feel badly because people want to win. But it can be a strong, motivating and driving force. Um, At the same time, one should be able to enjoy their their victories and pursuits. And if there are athletes who are so perfectionistic that they can hardly do that, that that's problematic from a performance point of view and probably an emotional, psychological point of view. But the losses, again, are driving forces. I, I can kind of feel that in my own athletic pursuits in the past. Uh, I can tell you about some of the the most painful, you know, underperformance or losses that I've had. Um, it's not that I forget about the wins, but those things stay with you in a way that help drive you to get better.
1: Right. No, I mean, isn't that a, isn't that a common characteristic of all of us, right? If you're a trader, you the pain of losing – your client's thousand dollars outstrips the joy of making them an extra thousand yeah, yeah. um, dollars. Let Let me ask you one more question because I, you you were very kind about this and and I think it's a real show of altruism. But I, I want to be sure I'm sort of phrasing it correctly. You you have made a um, you've made a very generous offer to the out of work uh, professional tennis players. So I, I want you to put it in your words so I don't mischaracterize it. But um, I, I think this is really extraordinary.
0: Uh, yeah. So. Uh, let me just explain. So what's happened of late is I've had the good fortune, um, especially in my in my financial work with hedge funds and traders to not miss a beat in terms of my, my work. Yes, I'm doing more of it remotely. I've already done some of it remotely, but in my work, well, I'm based in Austin, Texas. Now, um, you know, I've it's now all remote. So I feel very fortunate just from a work personal standpoint, a financial standpoint. Um, So you know, uh, one of the things that happened a couple of weeks ago was uh, I felt like the need to, uh, uh, um, how do I give back in one of the ways? And I I really felt like I wanted to be able to provide my services to tennis players who are on the tour who are isolated, who might be working through a whole bunch of performance and emotional situations, psychological situations. I thought, why not? This would be the time kind of on, like you said, an altruistic basis where I could give back my time and expertise on a volunteer basis to work for athletes. So about two or three weeks ago, I just started trying to contact people, uh, agents, athletes, coaches, just people like there's a, we have a mutual friend, Jessica Luther, who's a investigative sports writer. I wrote to her, she's based in Austin, she reached out to you. And and let me just say this, you know, one of the things that in this time uh, that we're all going through is one of the things I think we can all do is try to um, be a little more generous in giving, not only to ourselves, but to our families, to our friends, to other people. So although, because giving is one of the great ways about feeling better about oneself, and giving can mean a variety of things. It could be money, it could be time, it could be energy, whatever. So yes, I, I appreciate your kind words about being altruistic, but frankly, part of this is like, I feel like I'm going to feel better by giving something of myself. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I have an offer out there that if uh, professional tennis players want to reach me for a consultation uh, on a volunteer basis, of course, confidentiality is there. I am happy to do that. I've had a little traction in this. I started working, like I said, with a player a couple of weeks ago. Um, Word is starting to spread a little. I understand people don't know me. Um, I don't know them. Um, uh, it's a little hard to kind of feel comfortable in that scenario, and so uh, I just wanted to make that offer that people are free to reach out, and if it's, this is a, a working relationship, that seems like it would be helpful. Uh, I'm happy to engage in initial dialogue.
1: That's great. We will uh, we will help spread the word. But uh, this this is terrific. Um, this, this I think is a, a real dimension to this whole Corona crisis that I I think uh, we're probably not spending enough time with. I think for a long time going forward, the mental health dimension to this is going to be a big part of the story. But this, this was a great, this was a great conversation. And I I appreciate your uh, targeting this to tennis.
0: Well, I appreciate your time, John, and, and, and having the discussion. I've always kind of followed you and your work. So it's been, it's been great to chat with you and um, you know, this is a tough time for everybody. And so I'm just trying to kind of do my part in this. And if you can spread the word and somebody could reach out and kind of being of assistance to one person or 21 people or whatever it is, is going to be helpful for me and helpful for them. And so, uh, I, again, I, I appreciate your time as well.
1: We will uh, will spread the word. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks again. Good luck with the running and uh, stay in touch. Okay. Thank you very much, John. Right. Be well. Thanks, Dr. Take care. All right, thanks to our guest, Dr. Jonathan Katz. Good discussion there. I don't think we talk enough about um, mental health and about psychology in general. It's a topic that interests me a great deal. We will make a point of uh, doing this more often because I think it's really an important dimension to sports, to tennis, to life that um, we tend to gloss over. It's not as obvious as uh, who runs fast and uh, who has a better forehand, but I think it's something that any athlete at an elite level will tell you is absolutely um Integral to their success. So thanks to Dr. Katz. Thanks as always to uh, Jamie. Again, Jamie is a terrific producer and she and I both talk on the record, the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast that we will link about Venus and Serena in 1999 when they played in the the finals of Miami, which was really uh, a big pivot point in the Williams sisters story. Thanks everyone for listening. Again, hope everyone is well. We will try and have another podcast with a new guest next week. Keep the suggestions coming. Subscribe, rate, download uh we are on apple Stitcher, radio.com wherever you get your podcasts and uh stay safe everyone take care